do a lot of different things. Ready to run. What do you know about this becoming official from DeSantis? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis expected to make it official next week. The machine, the messaging. We've got a guy who doesn't give a damn about the people of his state. And the fight as Florida Democrats seize a moment. I friend you die and never for a second when I sit there and allow anyone to die. Headed to trial. Last week in the three-story building, North parking lot. The former school officer who failed to go into the Stoneman Douglas High mass shooting in progress. Is justice jail or bail? No bond in Carolina. New state law and the view from the bench. The biggest news of the week and the newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin this very locally focused program with the results of an election clear across the state. Why? To launch this question as elections ramp up, is Florida red or still purple? Voters in Jacksonville elected a new Democratic mayor this week, despite being outspent by her Republican opponent, who also had the endorsement of Governor Ron DeSantis. After a red wave in the midterms, the state legislature, with a two-to-one Republican majority, closed a session with a slate of new laws that steer to the right, health care, education, immigration, plus, plus, plus. This week, Florida Democrat State Chair Nikki Freed notched the win and also a record day of fundraising. And she is live with us this morning to handicap that moment. Nikki Freed, great to have you on the program. It's so great to be back, Lana. Thank you so much. And I think this is your first time as head of the state Democratic Party, so a new hat for you. Um, so yes. let's start with the win in Jacksonville. A one-off, do you think, or maybe a sign of change? It's definitely not a one-off. And Florida Democrats across the state and across the nation um, are celebrating the win on Tuesday. So a lot of things happened. You know, first and foremost, we had a fantastic candidate, Donna Deegan, uh, for mayor, and a, a great slate of candidates for property appraiser and city council members. But what happened was is that Democrats really leaned in on this race, both at the local level, the state level, and also the federal level. We coordinated like we've never coordinated on the ground before. Um, people were able to cross over because Donna had an uplifting message, where the Republicans went even further right. Uh, and this is the first time that we've seen an election. This is the first election that we've seen after this atrocious legislative session. So you're also seeing a lot of Republicans and independents that crossed over, not just for Donna, but for the entire slate. Uh, this is a really a backlash to a lot of the, the, the atrocious policies that came out of this legislative session. So let, let me talk about a little bit about what you just brought up, because what you're saying is sort of a sea change from what we've seen in the state Democratic Party up through and even after the midterms. I mean, after this legislative session, you see Republicans really energized for the Fight. There is energy, there is a fight, there is fire in the belly. And and to your point, Donna Deegan ran a, a sort of a really nice campaign. We didn't really see it in South Florida, <laughs> but it's a very nice unifying campaign. Did that speak to NPAs and do you think that's what the edge was? I, I do. You know, even when I was talking to Donna as I spent a lot of time in Jacksonville, I endorsed her even last year um, right after the primary. Uh, and so what she really did was, was bring this kind of 
breath of fresh air to, to local politics saying, look, you know, regardless if you're a Democrat, independent Republican, the issue is the same across the board. We want to make sure that we've got, you know, safety in our communities and our streets. We want to make sure that we have economic opportunities for everybody. Stop the corruption. Stop the, the, the internal fighting in local government. And when people wanted to get back to governing. And even as I, you know, was talking during these conversations and leading up to the election, you even saw comments from me and the rest of Democrats lifting up Donna, talking about all the things that she wants to do for, for Jacksonville. Well, you saw the Republicans spent the entire time attacking her, um, making false um, premises, false, and, you know, really having lies about her, her past. And people were just done with it. They said, look, we know we trust Donna. She's a fantastic individual, has done a lot for this community, and we're going to reward her by the people crossing over. But like I said, it wasn't just a crossover for Donna. They rewarded Democrats as down the ballot, having a historic win, the first ever black female property appraiser. That didn't just happen. That was because a lot of work, a lot of attention, and local politics uh, were just tired of the divisiveness. Let's talk about down ballot for a second, because you saw, and, and as we deconstruct and do a postmortem on what the November elections brought and what this latest session brought, you see that the Republican Party of Florida had a very strategic way of not only an, an aggressive voter outreach, no doubt, and up those numbers, but also really focused not on the top of the ticket, um, only and really down the ballot as down ballot as school board races with a very decided effort to stop candidates in those spots. Um, take take that run with that a mm -hmm. little bit in context of what does the Democratic Party need to do now to match that aggressive effort. You're absolutely correct, Lena. You know, and, and this is something that I have actually been saying for, for quite some years, is that we spend so much time and attention at the top of the tickets, and we don't spend enough time on, on the bottom of the ticket, the ones at the local level, the school boards, the city and county commission races, even the House and the Senate races. And so Democrats have to get back to what we do best. And that is that the voter engagement, having those one-on-one -on -one conversations, going back into our minority communities, um, we've taken them for granted uh, across the board. We took our blue counties for granted. And so what Democrats are going to have to do now is go back to the basics. That's door knocking. That's phone banking. That's making sure everybody is back on the vote by mail uh, list, which unfortunately the Republicans, um, as of this past year, uh, everybody has to get back on. So if you're listening, uh, please go check your, your vote by mail. Uh, make sure that you're getting back onto the list. But this is something that was a really a big wake-up call for Democrats, considering that we left 37 House seats open in, in 2022 and a whole handful of Senate seats, too. This is not how you win elections. You win elections by getting the energy, the enthusiasm, the candidates that people know on the ground, people know from those communities and from their engagement on years past. And that's what Democrats have to do. We have to field candidates up and down the ballot, making sure that we're having a local efforts, we're getting back to the basics, door knocking, and of course, increasing our voter registration. That's all coming back inside the party. And look, and I've said this to you consistently, November of 2022 was a complete breakdown of the Democratic Party. Everything from not fielding candidates, um, from not doing voter registration, from not doing door knocking, um, and that showed and unfortunately, it was the worst election results that Florida Democrats have ever seen. We have no statewide elected Democrat. Uh, it's the first time there's been a supermajority for the Republicans, no statewide elected Democrats uh, since the 1800s. That's going to change. 
this is not uh, an indicative of who we are as Floridians. Uh, it was a collapse of the Democratic Party in November. So now that we have, I mean, we've seen that the supermajority Republican effect in the last two months in the state legislature are some of the most conservative laws and some of the biggest swing to the right in this state in, in certainly my recent memory. And mm -hmm. I think um, people watching, to your point, that's part of it. The messaging was part of it. But Nikki, there is a lot of support around the state for a lot of the very conservative laws that are now in place. Um, and then again, there are some that have really very little widespread support when, if, if and when you look at polling mm -hmm. and you see case in point is the abortion restrictions to six weeks, not a lot of huge across the board support, although some very intensely concentrated support. Do you think that some of those very strict laws, be it uh, on immigration or abortion or an education, is that a is that a plus for democratic messaging or is that going to be something that you have to overcome? No, I mean, look, you know, th this legislative session, no one was happy. If you talk to, to Democrats, well, obviously you've talked to Democrats, they, they were in a fight for their lives. Um, but even if you talk to Republicans, um, they were miserable this legislative session. They didn't want to do the governor's bidding, but yet they, they all conceded to this. And so when you see 75% of Floridians not wanting um, in a six-week abortion ban. 71% did not want permitless carry in our state. Not even just permitless carry, it's trainless carry. Now people don't have to go through training in order to have um, a concealed weapon in our state. 70% did not want the attacks on higher education in House Bill 999, yet they passed it anyhow. People did not want the immigration reform, um, which now is going to have a detrimental impact on our three largest industries in the state. From construction, we're already seeing construction sites vacant. Uh, as soon as my ag industry goes back into the field to harvest, they're going to be without workers and also in the tourist industry. And so what Ron DeSantis has really done is his entire MO to run for president as he's going to announce from all of the speculation for next week. And, and he's done so in the backs of Floridians. And, and our economy is going to suffer. And, and unfortunately, this last legislative session and they would continued on these awful culture wars and not listening to the people. But at the same time, we've got property insurance crisis everywhere in the state of Florida. If you can even find an insurance carrier and hearing reports that next year, we're gonna see a 40% increase on property insurance. That's on them, that's on the Republicans. We're not handling the day-to-day -day issues that people in our state actually care about. And we believe that in 2024, uh, the Democrats are going to get rewarded for standing up for those types of fundamental issues that the people of our state care about. We have the largest teacher shortage in the nation. People are not staying here in our state to go to higher education, attacks on higher ed. And, and there's going to be a pendulum swing, and it's going to be imperative upon myself and the rest of the Democratic Party here in our state and across the country to make sure that we are ready um, to get that pendulum to swing back because this was an extreme, uh, and especially those that are coming from, from all over South America and Central America that have come to South Florida looking for democracy and freedom. And they get here and you're watching a legislative session where every single day more and more freedoms are being taken away, having elected officials being removed from office. I mean, this was an atrocious year for, for the, the people of our state, and we do believe that there's gonna be repercussions for it. Well, we, we will watch Florida Democrats go from defense to offense uh, under your leadership, and I hope you will return often and maybe do a little bit of debate, because there's a whole other side of the story to all the things that you just talked about. Thank you, Fried, thanks so much. Thanks for having me this morning. Okay.
All right, next is this the week. Finally, the governor makes it official. The signs and some insights when we come back. evidence pans out. This is the week Governor Ron DeSantis files paperwork and officially becomes a candidate for President of the United States with some major donors invited to this hotel on Brickell to do some fundraising for him late in the week. We're thinking Wednesday may be the day the Gov launches his Republican primary campaign after a decisive state reelection and as a force behind some of the most conservative state laws passed in recent history we've been talking about and also in the crosshairs of former President Donald Trump. Covering both for years is one of Florida's most insightful reporters. Mark Caputo is now national political reporter at The Messenger, a brand new nationwide publication. Mark, welcome back to This Week in South Florida. We've missed you. Okay, your your audio is kind of weird, so let's um, tweak the microphone a little bit because I know you got a lot yeah. to say. I don't know if we can do anything about that. Uh, okay, sounding better already. Well, welcome all right, to great. live well, we'll blame We will blame Comcast for this. So. <laughs> all right, so um, let's start. Let's start here. The signs are all there. Is there any reason to think that the governor will not finally file this week? He's going to file this week. Uh, he essentially has to. Uh, so on Wednesday, he's assembling donors to come to the Four Seasons. He'll probably either go there or chime in in a remote message and probably make some sort of kind of soft launch announcement. On Thursday, they're going to have breakfast, get a political briefing, and then those donors and fundraisers are going to hit the phones raising money for the campaign. In order to raise money for the campaign, you actually have to have a campaign. You need a campaign account. And so that's why it's going to happen before then. So we're thinking maybe Tuesday, by Tuesday, you'll see an actual official filing. Wednesday, you'll see uh, kind of some sort of official announcement from DeSantis. And then Thursday, it'll be quite, quite clear that's official because they'll have an account. Incidentally, DeSantis has probably been or has been an official candidate since May 15th, since last Monday, because that's when his campaign officially moved into an office. And under federal law, if you spend more than $5,000 to further a candidacy, you have 15 days to officially file the paperwork for your candidacy, but you become a candidate at that moment. And so, so you know, there you go. Right, and so everybody has been, you know, hit, to me, this is such a genius because everybody has been talking about it. He's been dominating the airwaves. Will he win? When will he? It, and that's, we're carrying the message, we, the collective media, carrying the message that he needs carried anyways. That's, you know, it's pretty smart on, I guess, his campaign's part to wait. Well, yeah, I mean, considering they've allowed the message to be totally dominated by Donald Trump up until this point. Sure, I'm not sure that balances it out. If you look at what's happened in all of the surveys in the early states and nationwide, it's been pretty bad for Donald, or for, pardon me, Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump has opened up quite a lead over him. It's early, but this is the time of a campaign where the metal of a campaign is really tested and where campaigns can kind of be won or lost early on. 
and not later on. But so, yeah, so let's um, let's, talk. Polls, let's see how people vote. Of right? course, of course. So let's let's talk early on because I guess the question now becomes, you know, will he play in Peoria and and not mm. Peoria, but the the first caucus, the first primary states, he was in Iowa, the first caucus, he's in New Hampshire, first primary state. It, it looks like that's kind of where his focus is going to be right up front. Does that jive with what you're seeing? Right. I did a story about that, about his kind of Iowa field of dreams, is he and basically everyone else who is in or is going to get into the Republican primary for president realizes that Donald Trump is in such a strong position that in order to win, they need to stop him from gaining momentum, stop Donald Trump from getting momentum in Iowa. The only candidate right now who appears to have the organization, the money and the poll numbers to do that is Ron DeSantis. So he's going to put a lot of chips into Iowa and then in New Hampshire. Kind of a classic strategy for a while, though. People were saying, oh, he might take this unorthodox path. But the reality is, is presidential campaigns are a number of elections, uh, a series of four in the four early states. And if you wind up losing the first two states, especially in the Republican primary, we haven't seen it since 1976, you will not become the nominee. So we'll see what happens. Uh, that's going to start in January. So what do you think about not only the messaging, but the actual um, effects of the last legislative session? I mean, it has been national news. There's, there's really no one engaged in national politics that does not know the powerhouse that Ron DeSantis has been in the legislative session and all the conservative and, uh, and swing to the right things that have come out of there, be it the abortion bill and education and immigration and even the fight now with Disney. I mean, that is hugely energizing for a conservative base. But how, how do you think that will play nationally? Well, a Republican primary quite well. He's, he's firmly, Ron DeSantis is firmly in line with where Republicans are. The question is, is do they like him more than Donald Trump for president? Right now, the answer to that question is no. But this is what campaigns are for. He has to make the case. DeSantis is still a governor. He's not really, in the minds of many, an official presidential candidate. Once he, is, once he is, once any excuse goes away, oh, well, he's not a candidate yet, uh, wait until he's a candidate, you'll see. Well, we'll see. And you know, that's going to start Wednesday or Thursday. And from that point on, the rubber's really going to hit the road. What do you think about this fight with Disney in the context of the business community watching? I mean, the governor's office this week, as soon as the plug was pulled on the billion-dollar project at Lake Nona, 2,000 <laughs> jobs or so, I mean, that, that was a real, it, you know, we took it as, oh, here's the other shot across the bow. But the governor's office right away came out and said, hey, you know, Disney was cutting back anyway. Why, why would you think this has anything to do with the governor? But how do you think this fight with Florida's biggest employer plays with the larger corporate community? Not so well, but at the same time, DeSantis has been making the case hey, we did this, even though he's kind of admitting it's retaliation, he's denying it is, that the state did this and took away this special benefit, this taxing district, because uh, Disney was essentially using the tax benefits of that and then engaging in political speech. Uh, it's a difficult argument to make. But at the same time, we've heard a lot of tough talk from corporate America about like, oh, we don't like this from Republicans, and then they sort of roll over and finance Republicans. A great example of that is what happened in, on January 6th of 2021, there are a lot of there's a pro-Trump mob had sacked the Capitol uh, for the first time. You know, the Capitol had been sacked since the War of 1812. And corporate America said, we're not going to finance these Republicans who voted to overturn the election results. And then they did. 
So the degree to which uh, you can believe how firmly they're going to stand on principle when Republicans are carrying more of their agenda, we're going to see. Up is down and down is up, and here we go again. I um, I know you don't like Zoom, and I promise next time you're with us, it will be live right here at the table, because I hope you're with us a lot this election year, and I so always I. value being with you for a few minutes. Thanks, Great. Mark. Great. I'll see you then. Okay, bye. bye. All right. The Parkland School Resource Officer, who never went in, Scott Peterson, he heads to trial this week, and we have a preview. Stay tuned. community's collective scar will once again open as another trial begins involving the mass murder at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School five years ago. This time, it's the school resource officer who did not go in. Scott Peterson is criminally charged with child neglect and negligence. For some legal context on that, Gail Levine, a veteran prosecutor leading some of South Florida's most high-profile cases, who is also here helping us make sense of the Douglas High shooters sentencing phase. Gail, it's great to have you on the program again. Thanks, Glenna. Nice to be here. So let's go through these charges. Um, seven child neglect charges with great bodily harm three culpable negligence and a perjury charge. But I want to start with the child neglect, neglect charges because uh, a law enforcement officer, former at this point, but in his capacity as a law enforcement officer, how unusual is a child neglect charge? Well, let me first start by saying the only person that is responsible for these 17 murders and these 17 attempted murders is the person that did it, who is in prison for life. Second thing I want to tell you is that police officers are sworn to protect and serve. They are not what I would believe is defined in the statutes in Florida as a caregiver. And Mr. Peterson is charged as a caregiver for those child neglect charges. That entails people that are supposed to be feeding and clothing a person that's a child or elderly or physically disabled. That is not what a police officer does. If that's what a police officer does, then we no longer have a right to privacy and we no longer need search warrants because police officers are caregivers to children and elderly. And, and would that, do you think that would hold true for a specifically a school resource officer? Absolutely. In fact, in 2018, when this crime occurred, there was very little law on what a school resource officer is supposed to do. In fact, that law, now, Statute 1001 was enacted after this shooting. So a school resource officer had very little responsibility in the light of being akin to a SWAT officer. Now, I want you to know that out of every 10 officers that apply for SWAT, maybe only four make it, graduate from the program because it takes a special person with special skills. That's not a school resource officer. Mr. Peterson did have some active shooter training that he received in 2016. It is not the same training that is given after this horrible attack. The training has evolved. What Mr. Peterson was doing was doing what his training told him to do. It's not about bravery, it's not about courage. Police officers act with training. And his training said, 
what's the intelligence that I'm receiving? And he says the intelligence he's receiving, which is backed up by the Broward Sheriff's Department radio transmissions, that he doesn't know where the shooter is because there's echoing. A teacher not far from him said she thinks the shooting's coming from a neighboring Walmart. He doesn't have the intelligence to go in to know where he's supposed to go. And in the end, he's got a knife in a gunfight. He's got a pistol with an AR-15. He's without backup. So those so jurors, those jurors are going to see, I, I don't know what, what you're able to see as we talk, but we were just showing video of the surveillance tape from the school um, and what he was doing. And Scott Peterson says he was on the radio. He was calling a code red. To your point, some of his training probably mandated just that. Um, so the jurors are going to see this video. They're going to they're going right. to hear his testimony about why he did not go in. You mentioned that he said he didn't know where the shots were coming from. Although some in the radio transmissions, he does mention the 1200 building. What what specifically do you think will resonate most when the jurors start to hear this story? Jurors who will be picked this week, presumably to be fair, though they may know so much about what transpired that day. Well, I think what you have to actually listen to is the radio transmission. And when you show the video, the surveillance video, which I've seen, you know, by looking it up myself, but what you don't hear is the transmission. What's he being told? Is he being told, you go in there? You go in there? No, he's not being told that because Broward Sheriff's Department is not getting the same radio transmission as Carl Springs. It's a perfect storm. Carl Springs knew where the shooter was based on the 911 transmissions. The 911 transmissions were going to Carl Springs. They were not connected to BSO. BSO was uh, forming a perimeter as they're trained to do, just like you saw in the Nashville shooting. You saw that lives were lost, yes, but the police didn't act and just run in. They set up, and unfortunately, they didn't know where to set up Broward Sheriff. That's why Coral Springs comes in and does the right thing. They had the intelligence. And the jury's going to hear this isn't the fault of Scott Peterson. This is the fault of poor radio transmission uh, communications that connect that's since been changed. And also training. How do you have one school resource officer, in effect, one SWAT officer, for 3,000 students. So many levels of what went wrong that we have found out since that. Why is that the charges include three charges of culpable negligence and one of perjury? Why is Scott Peterson charged with perjury? Scott Peterson testified that he wasn't, didn't know where the shots were coming from. And the perjury charge, I believe, stems from them being able to say he did. It's a matter of perception, and perception does not equal a lie. I think that's a charge that will fall as well. And what role will the 1200 building play? That, that building is being preserved still as evidence, as a, as a criminal crime scene, as a crime scene um, for this trial. What role does that play here? Well, I, th I think the role actually helps the defense because as we all saw, if we watched some of those videos, those horrific videos over the summer during the sentencing phase, the echoing sound, if you put yourself into that situation, even inside, the echo is very difficult to determine where the, shooter's, the shooter is and where he is coming from. 
So I think that is great that they've kept that because I think people have to, not Monday morning quarterback, Mr. Peterson, what they have to do is put themselves in the place of Mr. Peterson at that time with his training. He was trained. He followed the training procedures. If you don't like them, that's why they were changed. But I think it's really, really incumbent upon people that have children in schools to realize that one officer with a pistol does not win a gunfight with an AR-15. Gail Levine, always appreciate your insights, and I know you will be our go-to person as this uh, trial continues. Thanks so much. Look forward to helping. Thank you. Coming up next, jail or bail? A new state law governs where accused criminals go and how. became high profile this legislative session. A new state law focuses on how accused criminals are held or released to wait for trial. Locally, Miami-Dade courts were already reviewing that process and dealing with the politics of crime and punishment. Turns out the new state law and the Miami-Dade project have much in common. Nujan Safi is chief judge of Miami-Dade courts live with us today to take us through those changes. Your Honor, great to see you. Great to see you too, thank you for having me. Again, so we talked all about this a few months ago when you were in the thick of it. So now that the law is signed, sealed and delivered, what practically has changed? So, I mean, I think we still have a few months. The law doesn't take effect until January of 2024. So we have a few months to sort of figure out the specifics, but uh, we were happy to see that there were definitely some parts of the law that were putting into effect what exactly we were working on um, with our plan. So that's you know good news and hopefully it's gonna help us um, deliver what we were planning on delivering all along to the people of Miami-Dade County, which was you know an increase in public safety and, and just be better processes. So practically speaking, when we talked, um, we talked a lot about, or the headlines talked a lot about bail reform. And to your yeah. point, that was kind of a misnomer because bail reform frankly, scares a lot of people. People who are concerned with safety don't want accused criminals in their neighborhoods, for better or worse. Um, so what, what has the political rhetoric done to sort of overshadow the practical nature of what we're seeing now? What, what will happen in that courtroom? So I'm, I can't speak exactly to what's going to happen. I can tell you that the reason that I was repeatedly telling um, you, when we spoke last, and certainly, um, you know, other news outlets and, and the various county commissions, I'm sorry, the various uh, city and county commissioners um, that we spoke to about this is it, we were not intending to change bail. Bail was not going to change at all. Bail is an avenue for judges to use when they're going to release someone, and that was never going to change. What we were hoping to improve was just pretrial processes overall. And one of the biggest things we were hoping to improve um, was that we have many, many offenses in Miami-Dade County and certainly in the state of Florida right now that uh, don't require a first appearance hearing. So because they are bondable offenses um, and they're not non-bondable offenses and they are not otherwise held for first appearance, a person can post a bond and get out without seeing a judge. And that's one of the things that we were hoping to rectify and it's definitely something that was addressed by the bill. So, so that's somebody, one thing that I expect is going to change. Is, is that... A, a financial component? In other words, if someone is able and has the financial resources to post bond and, and not even show up, 
that is is not equal justice. Is that is that valid? So that's the concern for, for two reasons. One is that it's only focusing on finances. And, and in fact, you're not even going to see the person to know what their finances are. So the so the bail, our bond schedule is 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 blind is need blind. It's finance blind. So you've got people who can afford to bond out, and the judge never gets a chance to review the case to see if there's a victim that needs a stay away order, to see if they're what the person's prior history is, to see if the person has a prior history of failing to appear. Um, and that is one of the things that we were hoping to rectify, and that's one of the things that um, the assessment that was going to be done, and I believe Corrections is already using that assessment, was going to give the judge a score that included their history of failing to appear, or their their prior history, and that would all be included in a recommendation to the judge. So that's you know that's been at least partially uh, addressed by the new bill because there are going to be a vast number of offenses that are going to have to see a first appearance judge before they can be released, and then the judge will be able to review those factors and hopefully make a good decision about whether to give bail or some other form of release or to hold the person. I think a lot of people don't realize how what a complicated equation a, a, a bond or a bail decision is vis-a-vis -vis a history of a criminal or an accused criminal and uh, the, the actual crime. Um, I want to just ask you about one thing that this bill does um, among so many. It prohibits a person from being released prior to the first appearance if he or she has been arrested for a particularly violent or heinous crime. Wasn't that the case anyway? Why would a person accused of a violent or heinous crime be able to bond out? So I want to say yes and no. So we have a series of offenses that are either life uh, life felonies and uh, that are non-bondable and they have to see a first appearance judge. We also have a statute in Florida that requires anyone charged with domestic violence. They have to see a first appearance judge. But there are a lot of offenses that I think people would consider violent um, that don't need to see a first appearance judge. For example, you can commit an aggravated battery with a firearm, and if it's non-domestic, you would be able to bond out today without seeing a first appearance judge. And I think most people would agree that that would be considered at least, if, if maybe not heinous, but certainly violent, and depending on the circumstances, it could be heinous. So, so the answer to your question is sort of a yes and no. And that was honestly, that was one of the things that we were trying to um, address with, you know, really the years-long effort that we've been at trying to make sure that um, we could improve, you know, Florida's done a, Miami's certainly done a great job of keeping the crime rate down, and our hope was um, to, you know, to do even better and to make sure that people that are charged with, for example, firearm offenses would see a first appearance judge, which right now, today, they do not, depending on the nature of the of what they're arrested for. So, so I hope is it's going to be better. Is there anything, I remember when, when we spoke, I feel like our job here in the news is to kind of take politics out of things because sometimes political messaging really blurs the reality of, of what's happening. And I feel like some of this occurred as this project in Miami-Dade was going on and the state law was being written. So I'm just going to throw out this question. Is there anything in this state law that makes your job a bit more tougher, politically speaking? Um, no, I think honestly, the state law in the end actually did a lot of what we were intending to do. I said, I don't want, I don't want to speak you know to the politics. I can just say that clearly there was a pretty big misunderstanding for whatever reason um, in the community about what the multi-agency effort, and I say multi-agency because it was an ongoing effort with um, the courts, the state attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle, 
Carlos Martinez, the Dade Chiefs of Police. Um, and, and years back, it had started with my predecessor. Um, and it was, you know, in, all county commissioners were involved at that point, too. So it's been it's been a really a years long effort. But most recently, you know, we were kicking into high gear. And I think there was just for whatever reason, a lot of misunderstanding out there. Um, notwithstanding our efforts to try to correct the misunderstanding about what we were trying to do. Or, or this, ours. <laughs> yeah, and this this new law, I think, does does do a lot of what we were intending to do. Um, and we're going to continue to do what we always do, which is work within the parameters of the law to do our best to deliver um, safety and also a fair system to the people of this county. Your Honor, Nushin Safi, Chief Judge in Miami-Dade Courts, great to have you on the program. Great to see you. Thank you so much, Glenna. Great to see you, too. Up next, a movie in school, a parent's backlash, and a Florida teacher now facing an uncertain future. She's next. of Education has opened what may be the first investigation into a teacher under the brand new law that expands guidelines against sex and gender curriculum through middle and junior high school. The parent who brought the complaint is also a school board member in Hernando County, that's near Tampa, and lashed out at the teacher during this month's board meeting. You showed a movie that wasn't sanctioned school material, thus stripping the innocence of my 10-year-old, not your 10-year-old. I did not give you that right. It's my child. The issue is a PG Disney movie Jenna Barbie played for her fifth graders because of its earth science theme, and one of the characters is perceived to be gay. Ms. Barbie joins us from Hernando County today. Great to have you, Ms. Barbie. Hi, good to be here. <laughs> so, um... I guess this new law was signed literally weeks ago that expands the parents' rights uh, components into your grade. It expands it into fifth grade. Did you know about the law? Were you familiar with that? I was not familiar with it at all. So teachers did not, in Hernando County, I suppose, did not get a, a memo or an alert or here's what the guidelines are, nothing like that? No. No newspaper headlines, no. So so you're in this classroom and you show this movie and you have a school board member with a son or daughter, a fifth grader. Um, so what is the district now? I mean, it's a law and this happened. When the DOE is investigating and your district is investigating, take us through what that means practically. What have you experienced in that regard? So it just it started with just a letter from them. Well, the school member coming to the school and then a letter from them saying that I'm under investigation, although it doesn't even specify what statute. It just says misconduct. So my rebuttal letter was, can you please explain to me further if I need an attorney? What does this look like? Um, and then they've never contacted me besides the letter. I've called them multiple times and I finally got a hold of them the other day. Um, and they basically said that they're just going to collect all this information and then they're going to go talk to the students. So this past week they came through our school and my students got called out of class one by one so that they could uh, talk to them about, I'm not sure what the questions were, um, just to ask them, I guess, what the environment's like in my classroom. That's all that I've really gotten so far. So I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens next. Are you working now? Are you, school I guess ends in a couple of weeks, right? Are you back in the classroom? Yes, I, they never took me out of the classroom. Oh, okay. And yes, and people are thinking, there was a whole thing about high resign. No, it's, a, it's just a not returning next year. I am staying, I will finish with this class. I love my students. I wouldn't 
I would not want to, uh, I, I've been, that's one of the things I've been fighting is that I can finish this year with them. So you uh, are not coming back next year for, by your own choice, is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. So did you know that there is a, I, I don't know that it's a gay character in Strange World, it's certainly a character that has a couple of lines where you perceive this is a gay character. Did you know that? I, I've seen the movie once before, so like when I saw it, it didn't, Again, that doesn't, it didn't really phase me when we even watched it in class. Um, I've, I have students who are part of that community in this classroom. These students have, they talk about much deeper topics that I have to, some of them are, you know, you have to shut down, but they, they're very uh, aware of these kind of things. So because there was no PDA or anything like that, it didn't seem like a big deal. PDA I didn't realize being, it was. For anyone who doesn't know acronyms, public displays of affection. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> so let me, let me ask you this because, you know, this law is one of the most, has been one of the most controversial and whether you are in favor of it or opposed to it, it is a law as we sit here and speak, it is a law. And the fact that this, the conversation in your classroom um, and conversations are not part of the law or dictated in law, it's curriculum. And the word curriculum is, was used in the bill and in the law. So because this movie was part of the curriculum, I suppose this is the thing that they want to get to the root of. Um, are, you, are you willing to step up and, and let them know that you did not know what the law was. Maybe there's a breakdown in training. Maybe there's a breakdown in some somewhere along the lines. I mean, what's what is your future like? Well, I think that one of the biggest takeaways from this is that there. I didn't know about it. So first of all, if we're going to have laws that affect all the teachers, there needs to be a meeting of some sort amongst the district, amongst individual schools where they bring us all together and tell us what the rules are. Second, I think that there's kind of controversy right now across this whole state about what that law actually means now that I'm researching more about it since this incident. And it doesn't, there is no specifics. Everyone's kind of confused about what, so we're not allowed to say the word. Are you not allowed to have any representation of it, of homosexuality? It doesn't really make sense. Um, because while it's not part of curriculum, 90% of socialization these students get is in school and they have one-to-one -one devices. They're having these conversations. They're going through puberty. They talk about these things. So while I can shut stuff down in my immediate circle, they're still having these conversations outside of this, outside of, you know, my viewpoint when they're at recess and stuff like that. So what is what does this law mean? Because so I don't part, think any of us of, really know. To um, I guess we'll, we'll flip. You ask, I'll answer. <laughs> There's a component in the law that outlines what parents can do to challenge the curriculum, which I suppose is what this parent slash school board member did. And she's got a, a bully pulpit along with the parents' rights, which is what how this all played out into like now a national story. But it does what you're going through is what the process that this new law lays out when a parent challenges curriculum. So that's what we know. Right, so, and I guess that's a big thing a lot of teachers have been reaching out to me about is, I, there are so many teachers, there's three at our school alone that are, you're reported for indoctrination and that's that. A parent can say one thing and your entire 15, 10 plus career is on the line because a child went home and told their parent one thing and now the parent can just report you. So That's Jenna Barbie, I, I hear you. And uh, we've heard other teachers say the same and we've heard people who are very supportive of this law. So I think um, it sounds like your case will be uh, really a test case. And I hope you will stay in touch with us and, and let us know how that's progressing.
Absolutely. Jenna Barbie, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And we will be right back. If you just haven't had enough, rewatch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast. All you have to do is scan this QR code with your phone right there and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. And you know you are a very big part of this program. So please do connect with us on social media. Very easy to find and follow and connect. Reach out at Glenna WPLG. That's on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I know some people are weighing in right now as we speak. So thank you for that. And thank you for spending this hour with us. Keep it right here and definitely keep in touch.